This recording is a ministry of Grace Bible Church of Pleasant Hill, California. We want to thank you for listening and invite you to visit us each Lord's Day on our campus located at 40 Cleveland Road, Pleasant Hill, California, or at any time at gbcph.org. We pick it up this morning at verses 11 through 16. Galatians chapter 2. But when Cephas, that is Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, that's Peter, before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. And so we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. This is the word of the Lord. Lord, speak. Speak now to our hearts, Lord, help us to be attentive and to be receptive. Cause your word to bear fruit in our lives, we pray for Christ's sake. Amen. Have a seat. Thank you. Well, I hope you had a happy Thanksgiving. Uh, I know that we don't always, but... uh, we did. We were all together, our family, uh, and children, and our grandsons, all eight of them. And I told people in first hour, it was joyful mayhem. <laughs> yeah, we had a wonderful time. I hope that you did too. And it's great to come back and then come back and see uh, the Christmas decorations. I want to thank the sisters. I think there were some eight or nine or more sisters that put all this together. Thank you, gals. Appreciate you. Um, it uh, visually, begins to, visually begins to draw our focus upon the, upon the incarnation. And I know some of you maybe are just joining us today or you're visiting or some of you haven't been here for a little bit and we haven't been in Galatians for two weeks now. So just may remind you a little bit of what's been happening in the book of Galatians. Paul wrote this because he says there are some people who are trying to distort the gospel. He wrote it to a group of churches in Galatia that he had labored hard to establish along with Barnabas. And they were in some way challenging the gospel, challenging the gospel that he was preaching. And also they had doubts about his apostolic credentials. And so he began to defend in chapter one the gospel that he preaches and his apostolic credentials. 
There was a question about his relationship to the, the Jerusalem apostles. And so what Paul said in chapter 1 was, my gospel is, is not man's gospel. No man gave it to me. God revealed it to me when he revealed Jesus Christ to me. I didn't seek an authentication from the Jerusalem apostles because I didn't need it. God revealed his son to me. It wasn't until about three years later he said that I, I went to see Peter and met him and spent about two weeks with him and also met James there for a few days. And it wasn't until 14 years, I think after my conversion, as Paul's saying, that I, that I finally, having gone to Jerusalem, that I finally set before the Jerusalem apostles my gospel to see if I was running in vain. Were they preaching the same gospel that I was preaching? And he says there in chapter 2, in verses 1 through 11, I set my gospel before them. And you know what? They added nothing to it. They affirmed my gospel. And they recognized that God gave me grace to preach the gospel to the Gentiles, just as God gave grace to Peter to preach it to the Jews. And he said, we should just go on with our ministries and all they asked was that I remember the poor and I remember there was a famine at that time and he said that's the very thing that I was wanting to do as well. And so Paul in, in defending his, his, his gospel and his apostolic credentials we said what he's doing is he's giving these little short vignettes of, of, of scenes in his life and we've seen three of them and now in verses 11 through 14 he presents yet another account, another vignette, another scene that took place. It wasn't in Jerusalem, it was in Antioch. And I said first hour, not Antioch out here by Pittsburgh, but in Syrian Antioch, an ancient city, the third most populated city in the Roman Empire at that time. And he said, what took place there was very different than what took place up in Jerusalem when we shook hands and said, yes, we're preaching the same gospel. Let's go and do uh, what we need to do. And what was that gospel that they were preaching, both, both Peter and Paul there? It's the fact that Gentiles do not need to add uh, Jewish uh, ceremonies or the, the law of Moses, do not need to become Jewish, as it were, in order to be justified. That all people are saved in the same way. And he says, but there was another scene in which things went a different way, and that was the scene I read to you from verses 11 through 16. And what Paul contends for, what he uh, is, is talking about in that scene that he told us in that passage, I think is something that we should all, every one of us, deeply desire. And what was it that he was pressing for? He was pressing for a church community, a church culture that visibly reflects the gospel and what truth of the gospel in particular that God shows no partiality that anyone who comes to Christ anyone who is saved is saved in the same way by the sheer grace of God alone through the merits of Christ alone, all the benefits which, of which are received by the open, empty hand of faith alone. And that salvation has no connection to your, uh, your bloodline, whether you're Jewish or not, or your social status, or your, your culture, or your customs. We should all deeply desire that sort of clarity, that church culture that reflects that truth. And this is part of the beauty 
of the church. The beauty of the power of the gospel. The church is designed to be an ethnically diverse spiritual family, a people of diverse uh, cultural backgrounds and colors and economic status and different levels of education, ethnicities. They're all brought together, not just that there's a diversity, but that we are brought together as one. There's a lot of diversity in, in, in our culture right here in the Bay Area, right? You have a lot of you go to work and there's a lot of diversity there, but this is different. This is a diversity with a unity that the world can't create. That for all its talk about diversity and equality, the world cannot bring about what only the gospel, which is the power of God, can do. And that is bring people from all sorts of different backgrounds who would probably never spend any time together and bring them all together into one spiritual family in which we love one another and care for one another. Just as we read together from Ephesians chapter 4. The world can't do that. Political leaders can't do that. Philosophies can't do that. Only the gospel can do that. You know, growing up here in the Bay Area, which of course, as you all know, if you've been here any sort of time, there's a whole lot of diversity here. It's just part of the nature of, of the Bay Area. And so I, I, my first three few years were in Oakland. Uh, we, I, we lived in Oakland up through the third grade, I think it was for me. And, in Oakland, my best friends were black and Chinese, and I was the mutt. You know? I was the mutt, a mixture of Italian and Hispanic, and they didn't know what to do with me. But, but those were my friends. So I'm, what I'm getting at is a, there's a level of diversity that is natural, and I appreciate it, uh, but there was also a tremendous amount of prejudice, right? And we're no strangers to that here in America. We understand that there is a whole lot of it, and, that, and maybe some of you have experienced it. I think at times we forget that, that what we would maybe appreciate right here, I thank God for this diversity we see here, that this was extremely difficult, if not almost impossible, for the early Jewish Christian to accept right away. Jewish Christian, in other words, Someone of a Jewish background, raised in Jewish culture, raised with Jewish tradition, who had come to accept that Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah, it was difficult for those people to accept the fact that now Gentiles could sit at the same table with them and be included just like they are included, there'd be no difference with, between them without also becoming Jewish and doing things in a Jewish way. That was very, very difficult for them to understand and accept. For we need to remember that for centuries, more than one millennia, for centuries the ancient world had been divided into two forever. Especially from the Jewish perspective, there was Jews and then there were the Gentiles. They were the pagans, they were the outsiders. There were the Jews who were the chosen people of God, right? And then the Gentiles, they called them the dogs. And it had been that way for centuries. The Jews living in the time of Christ were living under a very powerful ethnocentricity, especially in reaction to the Roman Empire, because they were under the thumb of the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire, by virtue of the way it was structured, had purposefully brought together a very multicultural society 
a religious pluralism. When they would conquer a people, they would adopt their gods, you know, add them to their pantheon of gods, as it were, uh, to try and create a, a sort of unity. And so this, this was the world that the, that, the, uh, that the Jewish Christian lived in. And when he came to faith in Christ, it was very difficult for him to accept a Gentile dog is now on an equal partner in the people of God with me. And he didn't one day, not once, did he ceremoniously wash his hands correctly before a meal. <laughs> not once did he say the prayers he's supposed to say. Not once did he take sacrifice to temple. Not once, not once did he do any of these things that have marked the people of God for centuries. And he's an equal partner. He's my brother. She's my sister, you see. That was tough, beloved. It was so tough that Peter himself, now you remember this, those of you who read your Bibles, you know in the book of Acts, it was so difficult that, that Peter, who was the lead uh, apostle at the time of the church, at the early church, had to be given by God a vision three times, the same vision, three times. Remember, it's recorded in Acts chapter 10. That blanket descended from heaven. There was all sorts of unclean creatures, you know, uh, that he would never eat under the law of Moses. And, it said, and the voice said to him, rise up, Peter, kill and eat. And he would say, no, God, no, I've never done that. Here it comes a second time. Rise up, Peter, kill and eat. Have a barbecue. No, no, Lord, I'll I'll never do that. I've never eaten anything unclean. None of that's ever touched my lips. Rise up again. Again, Peter, three times. And all of this was to prepare him for what? A messenger whom God sent to Peter uh, to take Peter down. And he told him, go into the city, Joppa, and there you're going to find a man who's a Gentile, and you're going to go into his house and tell him the gospel. Peter had to be convinced by a threefold vision. And when he got there, what did he do? They, began, they connected, he began to explain, and he began to preach the gospel. And when it was all done, Acts 10 says, he breathed, I imagine him going, <sighs> he says, truly, I understand that God shows no partiality. That's shown in Acts, it's written in Acts chapter 10. Truly, God shows no partiality. Why? Because when he preached the gospel, they received the sign and seal of faith, which was the Holy Spirit just like the Jew. Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality. But still, even after that experience, here we have another story. Peter still struggled with it, as can we, which is why we need to hear this, right? The key verse is what? Key, verse 14. If you look at verse 14, that very first phrase in there, that is the key statement in this whole context. But when I saw, notice that, Peter didn't see it. Peter didn't see it in himself. Maybe you don't see it this morning in yourself. Barnabas didn't see it. Sometimes it's been said standing for the truth of the gospel can be very lonely. <laughs> Paul alone says, I saw it. When I saw, and here's the key phrase, that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. There it is. That's the problem. Their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. And what this passage teaches us, beloved, is that the gospel governs our actions, not only our beliefs. 
The gospel gives shape to our actions, our relationships, not only our beliefs. There are beliefs that contradict the gospel, and we must reject them, right? We're surrounded by churches in the Bay Area that have thrown out the authority of Scripture, thrown out the sufficiency of Scripture, uh, thrown out the inerrancy of Scripture. Those doctrines contradict the gospel. They must be rejected. But what, what, P, what Paul is emphasizing here, and I want you to see, is that there are actions that also contradict the gospel. And those must be rejected too. Because the truth of the gospel is at stake when the actions of Christians don't reflect the truth of the gospel. It undermines the truth of the gospel. You see, Peter, Peter's teaching is not mentioned here. It's his conduct. It's his behavior that is the problem. And so we want to focus on that this morning. The question we are asking ourselves as you come into this text this morning is how can I... How can we build lives? How can we build families? How can we build a Christian family, a church family that reflects the truth of the gospel instead of contradicts it? That's the question we're asking ourselves. And if we're going to answer that question this morning, what we have to do first is understand this whole story from this perspective. We have to let Paul speak to us and let him tell us what Peter did, why he did it, and what was the solution. Well, let's start. We'll just walk our way through the story, okay? In verse 11, it begins with the confrontation. Verse 11, verse 11 says, When Cephas came to Antioch, now that is Peter. Uh, I think I've mentioned in passing uh, that it was his Hebrew name. I was just speaking quickly. That's not accurate. What his, Peter had three names, if you would. His Hebrew name given to him by his parents was Simon. Simon Peter, you've heard that. Jesus gave him the name Petros, Little Rock. <laughs> and Cephas is the Aramaic translation of Peter, Little Rock. And so Paul is referring to him by his Aramaic name. This, this is, he's talking about the little rock who is Peter. He says, when Peter came to Antioch, so he's no longer in Jerusalem, sometime later, after they shook hands in Jerusalem, sometime later, Peter came to Antioch, he said, I opposed him to his face. Because he stood condemned. We said, man, those are strong words. Right here, Peter... And Paul, right? Two, two great heroes of the faith, two stalwarts of the faith, you know. Peter and Paul, face to face. Get your popcorn, folks. Let's see what happens, right? This is it's like he's setting us up here for a great theological battle or something. He said, I stood before Peter and I opposed him face to face. In other words, I want you to see this. He did it the right way. He did not talk about Peter behind his back, which happens in churches. He went to Peter personally first. In fact, Paul, I think, practiced the very thing he's going to encourage the Galatian Christians to do. Galatians 6, chapter 6, verse 1 says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression... 
Peter was transgressing. You who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. I'm sure that's what Paul did. He's going to tell the Galatians to do that. So he went to Peter. He spoke to him face to face and he encouraged him to you know, change his behavior because he stood condemned. But apparently he did not agree. He did not receive Paul's uh, rebuke because in verse 14 it says he had to rebuke him publicly in the presence of all. I, th- I take it to mean he did not respond to his face-to-face um, visit. And therefore he had to re- rebuke him publicly. Why? Because his sin was public and now he needed to rebuke him publicly. You know, I think it's important to appreciate that Paul, did, Paul had such a love for the gospel that he did not hesitate uh, to, to approach Peter because of who Peter was. The pillar, right? The pillar of the Jerusalem church, right? But really, that, that, that's what made it all the more necessary to approach Peter, right? Because someone like Peter had a great amount of influence as this, as this, as this paragraph here shows. And so Paul was so committed to protecting the integrity of the truth of the gospel that he didn't let Peter's status stand in his way of confronting him. And this is exactly the kind of loving confrontation that I think so many try to avoid nowadays. Mostly because we think it's unloving to do such a thing, right? To confront such a figure in such a public way, but... I, every parent understands that if you love someone, you're not ambivalent to the things that try to ruin them. And so you will speak to them. And so that's what he did here. And Paul, I think, had a tremendous love for, for the church of Antioch. It was the church that called him when Barnabas brought him there. He had a love for those Christians, and he had a, I'm sure he had a great respect and love for Peter as well. But the integrity of the gospel has to supersede in the end. It was Peter, excuse me, it was, it was Spurgeon who said, um, dear is Peter, dear still the truth. And so he had to confront Peter. It's possible to have needless con- uh, confrontations, isn't it? Absolutely. <laughs> Marriages, churches, have needless confrontations, meaning this was substantive. This, this had implications for the church. This had implications for the gospel. But there's some people who are just conf- confrontational. You know, that's just, that's just their nature. Or they're set off by any little thing. And it's not about uh, you're not walking in step with the truth of the gospel. It's you're not walking in step with me. You're not walking in step with my preferences. And so I'm going to make a big deal about it. You see, some people are like that, but that's not what's happening here. What's happening here? It's it's that this this could undermine the gospel. That's what concerned Paul. And that's when he spoke. And so should we. We should be careful to think about that. Uh, And so what was the reason that, that that he was so bold in his confrontation with Peter? It says here, he stood condemned. He stood condemned. And what do you think he means by that? Well, he doesn't mean that Peter has lost his salvation. He doesn't mean that Peter is no longer justified before God. Right? Romans 8, 1, Paul would write, there is therefore now no condemnation 
for those who are in Christ Jesus. He doesn't mean that Peter lost his status. What he means is that there was no doubt about it. He was in the wrong. <laughs> in fact, he uses a rare form of, 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 of grammar there that says he was, he was in a state of being condemned. In other words, this had been going on for a while. And it was clear to Paul. There's no denying it, Peter. You're in the wrong. You've done wrong by doing this. And that's why he labels it what? Hypocrisy. What a contrast to what happened in Jerusalem. The way Paul puts the two stories back to back is interesting, huh? In Jerusalem, it was all high fives, you know? Yes, we preach the same gospel. We go to the Jews and you go to the Gentiles. And what was the gospel again? That people are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, on the merits of Christ alone. And Gentiles do not need to act like Jews now. That's, that's, that was what they shook hands on in Jerusalem. And then here we read in the next scene, how is it that you force or compel Gentiles to start acting like Jews? Yeah, that's the reason he, 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 he spoke to him. That's the reason he confronted him. He, conf- he describes it as a hypocrisy. Isn't hypocrisy one of the main accusations against Christians and the church? You guys are a bunch of hypocrites. Paul says even a Peter can be a hypocrite. (laughs) Even a Peter and a Barnabas, sweet, peacemaking Barnabas can be a a hypocrite. That word hypocrite in in the Greek literature was a well-known word. It It was used of Greek dramas, the Greek plays. A hypocrite was an actor. And he was an actor who put on the, you know, held up those masks and pretended to be something they really weren't. Amen, yeah. You see, and that's what, what that Paul uses that word, and Peter would know exactly what he's talking about. We have our own thoughts of hypocrite, but this is what he was saying. He's saying, you're, you're play acting. You and Barnabas and all of you, you're a bunch, of, a bunch of actors. In other words, you're living in a way that's not consistent with what you confess to be true. Just like a stage actor pretends to be someone else. It's a hypocrisy, he says. And what is it that he was doing? What exactly was Peter doing that, that Paul labels it a hypocrisy? Look at verse 12. He says, before certain men came from James, he, Peter, was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. What was he doing? Notice the word before. (laughs) Before. In other words, there was a time when Peter had been eating with the Gentiles, and the and that was happening consistently. That it was habitual. The the, the, the tense of the verbs says that this is what he had been doing for a while. You see, in other words, it's not it's not that one time he ate with the Gentiles, Gentiles, and then he changed his mind. It's that he had been doing it. He had been eating with the Gentiles. That was his habit in, Ak- in Antioch. He had no problem sharing table fellowship with these Gentiles who did not know the, perhaps the, uh, much about Jewish scruples, and they certainly didn't keep Jewish scruples. We don't know to what extent these things happened, but perhaps what he's saying is, Peter, you were eating with Gentiles, and you were eating things you would never eat under the law. There was foods you're not supposed to eat, but you were eating them with the Gentiles. 
You were eating the foods with them even though they weren't washing their hands ceremonially as you, as you were accustomed to. Maybe they were eating meat sacrificed to temples. Maybe they were eating meat which did not have the blood uh, extracted in the proper way according to the law of Moses. Whatever it was, and maybe it was all of that, Peter, you were in the habit of doing that week in and week out. You were eating with Gentiles, having table fellowship, sitting across the table, and I'm sure it was a joyful time. And we have to see it as a, as a practice of Peter, not just something he did one. Why? Because again, what he does in verse 14, he says, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile. He cannot say that if he hadn't been doing it for some time. So you've been living like a Gentile. You set aside all your Jewish traditions. You set aside Jewish customs. You set aside the law of Moses in that sense, he says. And you were sitting across the table with Gentiles. You were in the habit of doing that over and over. He had no problem with it. And I'm sure, again, it was a very joyful expression for Peter to, you know, finally, finally experience, that is, get out from Jerusalem, which was, had experienced great famines, and there he goes up to Antioch, and there he's sitting eating stuff maybe he'd never tasted his whole life. And enjoying the company of people from different cultural backgrounds and so forth. Isn't that, don't you find that tremendous here when we have our, our, our fellowship meals or whatever it is, like a few weeks back we had, the, we had the Reformation celebration, the pots and pies, and you look in the room, you see all the different people in the place, or how about our church picnics and, and things like that. That's the kind of thing that Peter was experiencing. You need to picture this. He was in the habit of doing that. And meals, meals were a very important expression of hospitality in the ancient world, and it still is, right? Choosing to eat or not to eat with someone said a lot about your relationship with that person. And so Peter had said a whole lot of positive things with these people for a long time. He had been in the habit of sharing table fellowship with them. The relationships deepen, don't they, over a meal? Don't you know that, right? Some of you are great hosts and hostesses. <laughs> and you take a step, like having people into your home, sit at your table, and you spend a few hours together having meals. You feel like your relationship can go to a deeper degree. Uh, this uh, last month, I was helping a friend of mine uh, since junior high. Uh, I ha- helped him clear out his parents' home he did most of the work with his wife, but I came there a couple times. Uh, I grew up with him since we were 13. And I mentioned, I think a few months ago, his father died and I was able to visit with him before he died, but his home is in San Leandro and, and, and my friend lives in Oklahoma, so he came out and we were helping clear, you know, get rid of things, you know. I, we went through this as well with my dad and then we got to the dining room and there was the dining table. It always amazed me because uh, ever since I was 13, they, come from, they came from Argentina, and, and their table is what we call today like a farmhouse table or a ranch table, which way back when I was 13 just blew me away. You know, it's like this huge, long table made of dark wood. And he said to me, you want the table? Boy, that hit me. I put my hand on it, and I rubbed it and looked at it, and I just flashed back. How many meals that I have here with them and with the band, because we used to rehearse in the back end, the back of that house. We would come here and sit at this table, 
That's what Peter had been doing. What happened? Some men came from James. That's what he says. He doesn't say what they said. He doesn't say if James sent them to say that. He just said some men came from James, from Jerusalem. They went up to Antioch. And whatever they did put pressure on Peter. And he pulled away. You know that feeling, don't you, right? When someone pulls away, fellowship, right? Ouch, yeah. And you're going, what did I do? Honey, did I say something last night when they, when they were here? Did I say something that you think injured them? What did I do? They're not answering. They don't respond to emails anymore. I left them three messages. Well, you know what that feels like, right? I know what that feels like, not just as a, as, a, as a person, as a brother in Christ and as a friend, but I know what it feels like also as a pastor when people just suddenly just cut off. Gone, pull away. And you ask yourself, what is it? Is it, is it am I, and I, do I not preach Christ? No, you do. Have we denied the Trinity? No, you haven't. Do we believe Jesus rose from the dead? Yes. Is he the only way of salvation? Yes. So what is it? Ah, your sermons are too long. I'll grant you that. <laughs> but for that, for that, you won't return my calls? For that, you won't break bread? What is it with you? Well, that's what... That's what these people in Antioch were beginning to feel, you see. Only, only one man saw it, at least that would speak up. Saw the inconsistency is what I mean. They all saw the pain and the change, but Paul saw the hypocrisy of it. And that's why he went to speak to Peter. Yeah. Men came from James. <laughs> now, who were these men? Were they the actual Judaizers who were saying, you need to add to your faith in Jesus in order to be justified? We're not told that. And it's hard to think that James would send them to say it that way. Because James, again... Uh, the two times that we read of James in, in Scripture where that question was put to him, right? Two times. Do Gentiles need to become Jewish in order to be justified and full partners in the people of God? The two times that James is involved, both times he says, no. No, they don't need to. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in the merits of Christ alone. So I doubt that James sent them to say that. But as often happens, right, there's a tendency for enthusiastic lieutenants of strong leaders to go further than their leaders even are implying. To. That could have been that, huh? It could have been they were using James' name. You know, I think James would agree with us. Did he agree with them? <laughs> Or maybe it even wasn't that. Maybe this was the issue. Some think it's this. Maybe it was a matter not of do you need to become Jewish in order to be justified if you're a Gentile, but maybe the question was how should Jewish Christians relate to Gentile Christians in social gatherings? 
Maybe that was the issue. What I, what I mean is this. You understand that a Jew that became a Christian was freed to keep practicing some of their Jewish traditions as long as what? As long as they didn't think that was necessary to be justified and as long as they didn't think others needed to do that to be justified. They could still stay somewhat Jewish in that way, right? And so there was a question then, well then how do, I, how do I keep my scruples when I'm with Gentile Christians when they're sitting there slicing the pork? Maybe it was that. Again, we're not exactly sure what the men sent from James said, but this much we know, what? He feared them. Look again what it says. He separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. A circumcision party may mean just Jews. Literally, it could just mean people of the circumcision, meaning Jews, Jewish Christians. Or it could mean those Jewish Christians who were preaching a different message. He began to, he was intimidated by them. Now we know that Peter has suffered from the fear of man before, hasn't he? We all know that on the night of Jesus' arrest, what did he do? He denied he knew Jesus three times. So, so Peter has struggled with the people pleasing, as we talked about some weeks ago. He struggled with the fear of man, and here, here he struggles with it once again. Whatever it is, he was, he was fearing their reaction, what they would say or what they would do, what would be communicated back to Jerusalem, something. Whatever it is, he was intimidated, and he allowed himself to be led by fear of man, rather than what? The fear of God rather than the gospel truth. And that's what happened to him. And whenever, well listen, let me put it this way, fear is a powerful motivator, isn't it? Right, I mean from the most extreme examples, you see a bear running at you, what do you do? You run, right? Because you are afraid. Some fear is helpful, but the fear of man is a snare. And fear is a powerful motivator, and when it, when it gets hold of a group, you get this group dynamic going. And group dynamics can become a very powerful thing. When fear gets a foothold in a group of people like a church, fear of what this group is going to say, fear of what this individual who's very vocal is going to think and what he's going to say, that creates a sort of group dynamics and that group dynamics has a powerful influence upon other people. Look what happened there. It says, fearing the circumcision party, verse 13, eventually what happened? And the rest of the Jews. What is that? The rest of the Jewish Christians in Antioch. However many there were, the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray. Group dynamics is a powerful thing. I like to imagine that Barnabas was the last one to go. <laughs> Just because he's presented as such a good guy so many times. But you understand how group dynamics work, right? There comes a group. That group begins to talk. That group begins to be vocal. That group begins to, to put some, some kind of standards out there that, that go beyond what the scriptures say. But those standards become essential. Other people are convinced. Some of them are intimidated. And this group dynamic begins to create a culture. 
Now it could be possible, I mean, excuse me, excuse me, it could be good, it's possible that it'd be good, that you can have a group dynamic that is so strong that it promotes what? It promotes a, a kind of church culture that is a visible demonstration of the grace of God. But group dynamics can go the other way, yeah, right? It can go negative. And if we have a strong enough positive gospel-centric, gospel-informed group dynamic, it helps people who come in with a different sort of way of thinking. It helps them be influenced towards the right way of thinking and living, right? Someone may come, and some of you have come over the years through discipleship. In our classes, we've talked about this. Some come from a very much Jesus plus background. This is what a, a real Christian looks like. This is what a real Christian does. And, and, and the group dynamic of grace begins to break that down for you, and you begin to feel what? The bondage being pulled, those chains coming off of you. And you think, praise God. But group dynamics could be very negative and take people in the wrong direction and impose, impose externally upon people standards that be go, go beyond scripture as, what, as being essential to the life of a congregation. I've told you before, I've spoken to some of those churches over the years. And you figure it out the minute you get there and I realize, oh my goodness, every single person here is dressed the same way. Someone came up with a code. It might have been 10 years ago. I don't know. But through the last 10 years, that code is now, is now in control here. It could be about how, if you're a real Christian, this is how you educate your children. If you're a real Christian, this is how you dress on Sundays. If you're a real Christian, this is how you sing. This is what you sing. On and on it goes, it goes, you sing. There's good and bad, right? There's wisdom in making decisions. But when we begin to impose them as if it's, as if it's commanded, when it's in the realm of preference or the realm of wisdom, that is a group dynamic that is taking people in, in the wrong direction, you see. And so we have to, what it does, anytime, put it this way, anytime you add to faith in Jesus, whatever it is, Faith in Jesus plus the dress code. Faith in Jesus plus here's how you deal with entertainment, you know. Faith in Jesus plus this plus that. Anytime you do that, you have now created the dividing line between what? The haves and the haves nots. The in and the out. And you've created a two-tier Christianity, a two-tier spirituality, right, in the church. And whatever it is that you add to it, that becomes that defining or dividing line. Well, this was so powerful. It says here that all the Jews, Jewish Christians in Antioch, began to do what, excuse, yeah, began to do what Peter was doing, and they all started pulling away from the Gentiles. Can you imagine that? You know what? Some scholars point out that this most likely included what communion. The, the deepest form of table fellowship. Can you imagine that? Not only will Peter not eat with us anymore, but he won't eat at the Lord's table with us. Unless what? Unless, well, unless we start acting like Peter, unless we, you know, we gotta stop eating the stuff that we've always eaten. 
we got, what do we do? We're supposed to wash our hands like this before we go in and we're supposed to, and some people, who knows, some Gentiles made us start, okay, I guess I gotta do it. And that's what was happening. Beloved, listen, Barnabas was led astray. The verb that Paul uses there was he was carried away like by a, by a torrential, torrential river. He was carried, even Barnabas was sucked in, we'd say to this whole thing. That had to break Paul's heart. He was a close friend, a partner. Barnabas is the one who who brought Paul to Antioch and said, come teach with me. And together they went to Jerusalem and they shook hands with the pillars in Jerusalem and said, yes, this is the gospel. And then even Barnabas, even he, started avoiding the Gentiles. Again, I imagine the fact that Paul was the only one eating with Gentiles. <laughs> and maybe that's what kept them together, huh? With meaning the Gentile Christians. Maybe that was keeping them in a good space mentally is understanding, well, Paul eats with us. So what's up? Hmm. Listen, if this could happen with two of the pillars, Peter and Barnabas, it can happen, in, and it happens in churches that Paul started and taught in Antioch, Galatia, we'd be foolish to think it doesn't happen here. It can happen and it does happen. You know, adding standards of who, whom you will fellowship in this church, whom you will fellowship with in this church. Who's at your table? Who sits at your table? That's what happened there. Hmm. And I love Paul's metaphor to sum it up. How does he put it? Verse 14. This is how he describes it. It's important to see it. Look at verse 14. He says, what were they doing? He says, their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. New American Standard says, not straightforward with the gospel. NIV, not acting in line with the gospel. What does that mean? Well, let me literally translate it for you in the most literal way from the New Testament Greek. They were not walking uprightly with respect to the gospel. And what is translated as conduct and, and, and in step and in, this, in, in the ESV is a verb, and you listen to this verb, orthopodeo. What are you hearing there? Orthopedics, right? Orthopodeo. This is the only time this verb is used anywhere in the Bible, in the New Testament and in the Greek Old Testament. And it's a compound verb. Ortho means straight or upright. Either one, straight or upright. And podeo is to walk. And this, this, the verb to walk, there are different verbs for to walk in the New Testament. They're all, almost all translated walk. To walk is a New Testament metaphor that is very important because most of the time it's not talking about your literal walking, but what? It's talking about your, your whole course of life. First John says, walk in the light. Walk in the light, and what's that mean? It means that the, the whole course of your life has to be informed and shaped by the light of the truth of Christ. And, and Paul will use a different verb to, to use the, the similar picture in chapter 5 of Galatians. 
when he says in Galatians 5.25, keep in step with the Spirit. Walk in line with the truth of the gospel and keep in step with the Spirit. It's a different verb, but it, it, it has the very similar meaning. That verb means walking in line or holding to a rule in chapter 5. And so what's he mean here in chapter 2? What is Paul getting at? He's saying, your behavior in rejecting fellowship with people on the basis of their cultural practices, your doing that is not walking in line with the truth of the gospel. Remember, the gospel is not a call to do something, correct? It's a declaration of what God has done through Christ to reconcile sinners to himself forever that our sins may be forgiven and we may be justified. That is the gospel. But when the person receives the gospel, what he's saying is the gospel has implications. They're not in the gospel, but they are the product of the gospel. There are implications. The gospel sets out lines and we have to walk in accordance with that line. That's what Paul is getting at. How exactly then was Peter not in line with the truth of the gospel? Well, I I think you've seen it by now, and it comes out directly when he he tells us, what did he tell Peter's face to Peter's face uh, in public? Verse 14, here it is, right here, at the end of verse 14. I'd said to Cephas, to Peter before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, How can you possibly force the Gentiles to live like Jews? What is he saying? He's saying, if you were living like a Gentile for the longest time, eating at their table with them, you were doing that, how can you now turn around and force Gentiles to live like Jews? You're inconsistent. You're a hypocrite. That's what he's telling him. It was fine for you, but now you're saying it's not fine for them. And you're giving in to this intimidation from these men from from, uh, Jerusalem. Remember, we saw last two weeks ago, Paul said when he faced the same kind of question, he said, we did not submit to them even for one second. But here Peter, he succumbs. He succumbs to the peer pressure, to the group dynamic, you know. Again, sometimes standing for the truth of the gospel is a very lonely experience. And that's what's happening, I said, in in Costa Rica at this group of churches that I mentioned two weeks ago. that They're being intimidated by a group of Christian leaders in Costa Rica who have solid doctrine, but they're imposing a way of living out the Christian life and a way of doing church as essential in order to be really in. And those who stand for the truth there are becoming more and more lonely. In fact, I'm going to be going there. I won't be here next week. Um, Pastor Tom will be preaching next Sunday and I'll be in Costa Rica and I, I ask for your prayers. And so he was not walking in step with the truth of the gospel. And any time that... Uh, we add to the gospel of Christ, we also begin to walk outside of it. 
And what was the antidote? It's what Paul did there when he went on to verse 15. You know, some think that what Paul said to Peter ends at verse 14, but others, and I take it this way, is that what, when Paul says, I, told, I spoke to Peter, he told him everything up through verse 21. And so the antidote begins to emerge in verses 15 and 16. This is what he said to him. He said, how, is it, can you, how can you possibly force Gentiles to live like Jews? Then verse 15, he says, we ourselves. He's talking about Peter and him. He says, Peter, we, we ourselves are Jews. We are Jews by birth. And we're not Gentile sinners. We were Jewish sinners. And yet we know, what do we know, Peter? We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Christ, Jesus Christ. And so we also, we Jews, we Jews also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, Peter, because by works of the law, no one, Jew or Gentile, will ever be justified. The antidote is what? Always the gospel. What he tells them essentially is this, is Peter, remember, understand the basis upon which you entered into fellowship with God. What brought you to God's table, Peter? Why were you seated at God's table? Or is it because, did God save you because of your Jewishness, Peter? Did God save you because of the many years of keeping the dietary laws, Peter? Did God save you, Peter, because you, you were circumcised? Did God save you, Peter, because you washed your hands properly? Did God save you because you kept the Sabbath, Peter? Why did God save you, Peter? Why are you at his table, Peter? He saved you only because he sent his son to die for your sins. Amen. And you and I know, Peter, that we Jews, just like the Gentiles, are saved by faith alone. Look what he says in chapter 3, 26. In Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. I need an amen there. All right. All right. <laughs> Wake up, folks. <laughs> through faith. That, I mean, there it is right there, right? You see? And so Peter's saying, I mean, Paul's saying to Peter, here's the antidote to the sectarianism, this uppityness, this two-tier Christianity. Uh, here's the antidote. Remember, ask yourself, what brought you to God's table? And then ask yourself, why in the world are you asking people to do more than you? <laughs> and if God received you to his fellowship at his table, on the basis of Christ alone, you need to receive others on that same basis. So understand the basis upon which you entered into fellowship with Christ. Understand that the vertical reconciliation with God has brought about a horizontal reconciliation with people. And then secondly, understand that, uh, that there is also a design for the church and that this is the very design that God has in mind, which is what? A people that are no longer primarily Jewish, with a few that were added in over the centuries, but, but the, a, a, a people that are Jew and Gentile, people of every nation, tribe, and tongue, living together, coming together spiritually as one. And he's going he's gonna to say that to them in this letter. He's going to develop that. Again, chapter 3, verse 27. As many as you were baptized into Christ and have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. 
And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs, heirs according to promise, not according to law-keeping. And so this is, this is the beauty of, of the church, and he wants us to understand that and appreciate that. You know, God loves diversity. He created it. In Acts chapter 17, Paul says this when he's preaching in Mars Hill, verse 6, 26, he said, He, that's God, made from one man, every nation, every ethnos, every ethnicity of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. God created it. It was his sovereign plan to create ethnicities. And then he told Abraham, after he created them, he told them that he was going to bring them all together into one eternal family, you see. And when Paul... Paul must have been, uh, we know this, Paul, before he became a Christian, he was one of the most ethnocentric people on the face of the earth. <laughs> I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He says, never once did anything touch my lips. You know, <laughs> That was Paul. And now he's the one demanding that we receive anyone from whatever cultural background into the family of God. And he wrote to the church at Ephesus, and he says, you, you were far off. I was closer. I was still dead in sins, but I was closer. Why? Because I, I had the scriptures. I had the covenants. But you know what God did? Through Christ the cross, he made peace between you and me and more importantly between us and him. And so he says, now we have access to the Father through the one spirit, Jew, Gentile, black, white, whatever, he says. That's it. Um, it's, that's the antidote to the sectarianism and two-tier Christianity is understand, understand the gospel again, how it is that you came in to be in fellowship with God and understand God's design for the church. The gospel governs our actions as well as our beliefs. Some beliefs contradict the gospel. We must reject them. Some actions like this also contradict the gospel. We must reject them. Peter may have never preached a different gospel in Antioch, not with his lips, but his treatment of others said it all. How about you? How about you? Who's at your table? I thank God again. We still have a ways to go, but man, I thank God for the, not just diversity, because again, you can just simply have diversity, but diversity with unity, with oneness that we get to experience here, and I hope you cherish it. And the only basis for it is Christ, what he's done. We're going to finish with a song that's going to say just that. So we're going to praise the Lord. We're going to bring our offerings to him as we finish. And I, you're visiting today. I'm going to pray. And we, Our offering is part of our response to God for his goodness to us. You are here as our guest. You can do as you please. What, what I would ask if...